Hey everyone, it's Victoria. Before we get started, I'm going to introduce one of our new advocates. Mitch is joining me on the podcast today, so you'll be hearing a new voice throughout this episode. I'll let them introduce themselves before we dive in. Hey Mitch, welcome to the podcast. We'd love to hear a little more about you. Hey, thanks Victoria. Greetings everyone. As Victoria said, my name is Mitch and I use any all pronouns. I'm a new advocate at the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, and I'm absolutely stoked to be here. I'd love to share a little bit about myself. Some of the identities I hold are that I'm queer fabulous, I'm non-monogamous, a multiracial person of color, first-generation college graduate, and I'm also a survivor myself. I have an undergraduate degree in psychology and a master's in counseling. Professionally, I have mostly worked in the nonprofit sector, and I'm realizing that crisis and trauma work are kind of my thing. I've had the previous privilege of working with survivors of all identities, as well as families of interpersonal violence, or IPV for short. A quick holler out to the folks at the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence in Boulder. Y'all, that organization changed my life. Moving on, I've been in and out of the intellectual and developmental disabilities field since the mid-90s. I've also worked with people who've experienced trauma from natural disasters and more recently worked at an LGBTQ nonprofit during the height of the pandemic as a community advocate. I'd like to give out another quick shout to the folks at Outboarder County, another nonprofit organization that's doing some kick-ass work for supporting their queer community. I've facilitated community and volunteer trainings, as well as education around all various social justice topics. I guess you could say social justice is a passion of mine, personally and professionally which is probably what keeps me wanting to work on the front lines with people. I personally consider being able to work with people at their most vulnerable and darkest times one of the most precious gifts of trust. And I take that very seriously, and I do the best that I can to support survivors who reach out to us for help. On a lighter note, I relocated to Colorado about 16 years ago from Texas, and more recently, I moved out of Boulder County about a year ago. And I've been here in Fort Collins ever since. Some of the things I enjoy when I'm not working are attending pottery class, being outside with nature, attending live music, DIY projects because I love power tools, a delicious charcuterie spread, which to me is just a fancy word for yummy finger food, and spending time with my friends, loved ones, and two cats. We're so excited to have you join us, Mitch, both on the podcast and in the office. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about relationship violence. It's likely you've heard of relationship violence, which is also called domestic violence, and you probably have some understanding about what it is. But the realities of it are far more complex than many of us know. In this episode, Mitch and I will talk about what relationship violence is and how it impacts survivors. That's right. The WGAC often uses the terms relationship violence or dating violence instead of domestic violence. And that's because domestic violence is often used to describe abuse inside of marriages or relationships where a victim lives with their perpetrator or in instances where partners share children. But understandably, a lot of our students don't identify with this term or see themselves in it because of those assumptions. And some folks may think that dating relationships are actually immune from violence. So we've embraced the term relationship violence to talk about abuse in all romantic relationships. However, domestic, dating, and relationship violence are all really interchangeable terms, depending on your particular situation. Also, before we start digging in, I'd like to acknowledge how talking about IPV can be activating for a lot of people. So we want to take a moment to encourage our listeners to please take care of yourselves in whatever way that looks like for you. 
Yep, exactly, Mitch. Language is so important when talking about this topic and all of the other ones that we talk about in our office. So we're going to dive in with a definition. Relationship violence is a pattern of abuse that is perpetrated by a current or former intimate partner. The term intimate in this sense doesn't necessarily mean you've had sex with your abuser, but that you identify your current or former relationship as a dating and or romantic one. People of all identities can and do experience relationship violence, just as people of all identities perpetrate it. However, we know that cis men often commit acts of relationship violence and victims are overwhelmingly women. In fact, women between the ages of 18 and 34 generally experience higher rates of relationship violence than any other gender and age demographic. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in three women and one in four men have experienced relationship violence in their lifetimes. And an average of three women are killed every day in the United States at the hands of a current or former intimate partner. It's important to note that these statistics include the experiences of cisgender people and are not necessarily reflective of trans people or folks of other gender identities. This is a gap in research that we hope gets filled in the near future because it's incredibly important to understand the nuances of intimate partner abuse. Relationship violence, like other forms of gender-based violence, is all about power and control. Contrary to popular belief, abusers don't abuse because they have anger issues or substance abuse problems. In fact, abusers are often very much in control of their emotions and behavior. For example, we know of several cases where police were called to the scene of domestic violence and the abuser immediately calmed down. On the other hand, the victim was very upset, understandably so because they'd just been abused. Now, if an abuser truly suffered from, quote, anger issues, they would be unable to calm down so quickly. So for officers on the scene who were not trained in relationship violence, it appeared that the victim was the one causing the situation and not the actual perpetrator because of the difference in their emotional behavior. And the victim was arrested for domestic violence. Some police officers lack training about the dynamics of domestic violence and the nuances found in these kinds of relationships which may lead to wrongful arrest. Yeah, I've been witness to some of those situations too, and it's so messed up. You know, here in Colorado, if someone is arrested for a crime with a domestic violence enhancer, an automatic order of protection will be put into place. For example, if some rando were to slash someone's tires, that's a crime, right? But a current or ex-partner were to do this, then the domestic violence enhancer would be added. And sometimes when that happens, it can prevent a survivor from accessing their home, pets, and or children in traditional cases. But in a university setting, it might look like the victim being prevented from accessing their classes, resident halls, or other shared university location, and so on. Cases like this can highly discourage survivors from calling the police again because of the fear of potential negative legal consequences against them. This is just one example that helps us understand that quote-unquote anger issues are not at the heart of relationship violence and that it's a controlled and intentional behavior. Also, we often hear that relationship violence wouldn't happen if an abusive partner stopped drinking or using drugs. But actually, substance abuse doesn't cause relationship violence because if it did, think about it. All people who use drugs or alcohol would be abusive, right? 
Now, drugs and alcohol may impact an abuser's behavior or give them justification when they choose to act violently because, as we know, alcohol and other drugs can lower our inhibitions. But it does not cause relationship violence, just like alcohol doesn't cause rape. The only cause of relationship violence is choosing to engage in abusive behavior. Now, before we get into what abuse looks like in a relationship, I want to talk about the grooming process. In the IPV field, we often say that abusers don't usually hit or belittle their victims on the first date because that would be an obvious red flag, right? So, on the contrary, abusers usually start off pretty damn charming, often what we call love bombing them. For those who might not be familiar with the term love bombing, this refers to sharing someone with excessive affection and superficial positive attention often moving things in the relationship very quickly in order to gain control over the victim. This attention may feel really good, but the goal in love bombing is manipulation, power, and control. Charm and love bombing often cause the victim to fall for the abuser very quickly, and it's a pretty common tactic abusers use. After a little while, the abuser will begin to inflict emotional or psychological abuse to throw their victim off balance. Some of it can be very subtle and seem like acts of intense love. Then, as more time passes, which will vary depending on the situation, an abusive incident will happen. And this doesn't always mean it's a physical incident. It could be a verbal violence, stonewalling, passive aggressiveness, or other forms of relationship violence, followed by apologies and promises to give the victim a false sense of hope in the relationship. This is often referred to as the honeymoon stage or the hook to get them to stay. Now, Victoria is going to talk about some of the common red flags to look out for. There are tons of red flags in abusive relationships, which are behaviors that indicate a high likelihood of future abuse. Some of these behaviors may even feel flattering at first and can take place any time in a relationship, with seemingly positive ones often showing up in the beginning, such as love bombing, like Mitch said. Now, these actions may not be red flags on their own, but several of them from the same person can be a sign of a problem. In the beginning of an abusive relationship, red flags can be a bit more subtle. And as the relationship continues, more red flags may show up, like your partner getting excessively jealous, monitoring your phone, or wanting to know where you are all the time. After a while, when a victim has been groomed by their perpetrator, a cycle or pattern of abuse will emerge. The timing of the cycle is different in every relationship. This cycle begins with a period of calm. This is when things seem good in the relationship and a victim feels mostly happy. However, even during the calm phase, a survivor may feel like something is wrong and be unable to put their finger on what or why. The next step in the cycle of abuse is tension building, which is also called walking on eggshells. This is a point where an abuser begins to use intimidation or other intentional behaviors that cause distress and tension in the survivor, leading to feelings of hypervigilance and fear, especially when the survivor has experienced the cycle before. Tension building leads to a specific incident of violence, which happens so the abuser can remain in control over their victim. It's important to note that violence is not only physical. In fact, some abusive relationships never include physical abuse at all. Violence can show up as something else, such as emotional or psychological abuse. We will talk more about different types of abuse later in this episode. 
Now, the next stage in the abuse cycle is called reconciliation. This is also called the honeymoon stage or the hook, as Mitch said earlier. Abusers often apologize profusely during this stage while also blaming their victim for the abuse, saying things like, I'm sorry that happened, but you just make me so mad. You really know how to push my buttons, or if you just didn't do that, I wouldn't have to hurt you. There's lots of other things that abusers will say to keep the blame on the victim. These apologies, coupled with victim blaming, often lead survivors to try to change their behavior to satisfy their abuser. But there's nothing a victim can do to prevent abuse, and it is never a survivor's fault. Abusers hurt their partners because they choose to do so. Abusers will often love bomb their victim again during the honeymoon stage, which draws them back in and gives them hope that everything will be okay or that the relationship will be like it was in the beginning. Sometimes, when a survivor has been in an abusive relationship for a long time, the calm and honeymoon phases will drop out, causing the cycle to swing from tension building to abuse over and over again. So, y'all might be thinking, well, why doesn't the victim just leave? This is a common but complex question that places the responsibility of safety on the survivor instead of on their abuser, where it belongs. Some of y'all might remember the hashtag, quote-unquote, why I stayed, that was trending for a while. Well, the fact that there was a viral hashtag on this very topic is an answer to this very question. So, if you're curious and want to learn, check out the hashtag, why I stayed. So yeah, there's a ton of reasons that victims don't leave abusive relationships. For example, in Fort Collins, Crossroads Safe House is an awesome emergency domestic violence shelter that's a vital service to our community. And it wouldn't matter how many beds they had to offer, they'd all be full. In talking with my peers who have all worked at IPV organizations or shelters outside of Fort Collins and even outside of Colorado, it's common theme because there's such a need and nonprofits are limited to funding and capacity, which is quite unfortunate. Like other shelters, Crossroads is only able to offer an eight-week max stay in the facility. After that, there's no guarantee of safe housing, especially given the high rental rates in Fort Collins and the long wait times for affordable housing. So for a low-income survivor, the lack of money may stop them from leaving their relationship. To add on to this, our current social climate with COVID is also a reason that may keep survivors from leaving an abusive relationship. And we know that being isolated with an abuser increases the likelihood of abuse. What's more, some survivors may also think they deserve to be abused or are at fault for the abuse, especially if they have received this message from their abuser over time. Abusers may also repeatedly promise to get help, like counseling which, coupled with the honeymoon stage, offers a survivor hope that things will change and go back to how it was in the beginning, like when the abuser gave them lots of love and attention. This is sometimes referred to as future faking, when an abuser intentionally makes false promises. It's pretty rare that an abusive person will change. Other obstacles to leaving can be related to cultural, religious, identity-related, disabilities, citizenship, and flat-out threats if they leave, and so on. This understandably causes an enormous amount of fear for a victim. Often gaslighting has taken place, which is meant to confuse the victim or cause them to question the reality and replace it with their abuser's reality. They may also feel like they don't deserve better, and some survivors report feeling quote-unquote addicted to the chaotic dynamic of abuse. 
It can become comfortable or feel normal, particularly if they have experienced abuse for some time. To put this in context, it's like having the comfort of knowing what to expect, even though it's dysfunctional, versus the fear of the unknown and the unsurmountable challenges that seem overwhelming. Now, we can't say this enough. There are so many reasons victims don't leave. And we know that survivors actually leave an average of eight times before getting out for good. And some people are unable to escape their abusive relationship at all. This can be hard for support people to understand, but it's super common and doesn't say anything bad about the survivor. Also, we know that the time right during and after leaving a violent relationship is the most dangerous for a survivor, and this increases their risk of intimate partner homicide. In the field, this is called escalation. This danger increases each time a survivor leaves their relationship, which puts them at greater and greater risk of extreme violence or even death. Escalation is also used to describe the increasing frequency and or severity of violence that happens in the course of an abusive relationship. Even if a survivor is able to escape an abusive relationship, this doesn't necessarily mean that their abuse will end. Survivors may experience escalated violence or stalking from their ex-partner, and abusers may use children or pets to further harm a victimized parent. We know of several cases where an abuser convinces a court that the victim is a bad parent, taking custody of their shared children, and refusing to allow the victim to be in their children's lives. It's often said that abusers are just as good at grooming allies as they are at grooming victims. We also hear about abusers using their new partner or other family members to further abuse their victim. Still, other survivors may have to move, change their name, and look over their shoulder for years. Abuse is an ongoing cycle that is extremely difficult to break even after a survivor leaves their abusive partner. A victim may also find themselves in another abusive relationship after leaving, especially if the new relationship seems different from the old one. For example, if a survivor experienced physical and emotional abuse in one relationship and only emotional abuse in the next one, they may have a more difficult time identifying their new partner's behavior as abusive because they're not physically violent. Essentially, the ability to identify abuse in new relationships can be skewed because of a survivor's previous experiences. Yep, that's right, Victoria. And what's more, survivors may also have to work for years to heal from their abuse. The fear, life changes, identities, economic hardship, single parenthood, mental illness, lack of resources and support systems, and many other considerations are barriers that often exacerbate an already difficult situation for a survivor. This can lead to feeling overwhelmed enough to drive them back into the arms and homes of their abuser. Another caveat that isn't talked about as much with victims is that some of them often feel grief as well because they're losing a partner whom they really do love, as well as their marriage, family, and or home. And even if a survivor doesn't go back, they still have to invest an enormous amount of time, resources, and energy into their healing journey which can have a lot of complex layers depending on their situation. There are many more reasons that people don't or can't escape abuse. So instead of asking, why don't they just leave? Perhaps we should reframe our question and ask, why does that person abuse their partner? Why does society lack real accountability for those actions? 
And why can't we guarantee survivors safety and justice? Now, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about types of abuse. Contrary to popular belief, like Victoria mentioned, abuse isn't always physical. There are several ways that abusers may harm their victim. Physical abuse is certainly one type, and this includes things like hitting, pushing, kicking, strangulation, or any other form of physical violence. Sexual abuse happens in relationships as well and includes forced and or coerced sexual contact and any type of romantic relationship, including marriage. Another type of abuse is psychological. This includes behaviors like gaslighting, which we defined just a little earlier. Next, emotional and verbal abuse. That can look like making fun of a partner, minimizing their feelings, yelling, intimidation, put-downs, and more behaviors that impact the emotions of the survivor. Now, other types of abuse, like physical abuse, definitely have an emotional impact. But emotional abuse also happens on its own. Financial abuse happens when a perpetrator controls their victim's income and or finances. This can look like not allowing the victim to work, making them earn all the money in the household, forcing them to miss work, or other things related to finances. Abusers may also digitally abuse their victims by monitoring their devices or email or social media accounts, and they may also academically abuse them by forcing them to miss class or skip homework, resulting in poor grades and loss of scholarships. Stalking may also take place in an intimate relationship as well. This is not an exhaustive list of the ways that people can abuse. So if you feel like something is off in your relationship, we always say to trust your gut and you could also come see us for help. Identity is also a common way that perpetrators abuse their victims. They may threaten to out closeted partners to their families, call the police on a partner of color, withhold financial support from a low-income partner, report a partner with a substance abuse issue, take somebody's children, and many other identity-based things in an attempt to force the victim to follow an abuser's orders and or to stay in the abusive relationship. Again, the goal is always about power and control. Advocates working in the field sometimes use lethality assessments, which means they screen for certain behaviors that we know increase the likelihood of intimate partner homicide. The reason we do this is because it happens in every community, even ours. It was not that long ago in 2016 and 2017 that the CSU and Fort Collins community experienced the grave news of losing two young people as a result of relationship violence. If we can support someone in leaving or staying safe while in an IPV situation or prevent one more person from experiencing IPV, it's all worth it to me. All right, y'all, I know we've just laid out some really heavy information. And on that note, I'd like to offer the option to do a short grounding exercise through breathwork, along with me and Victoria, as we move away from this heavy content, back to our daily routines and responsibilities. So, let's begin. We can start by simply sitting in our seats, our spine stretched straight up above our hips, with our eyes either closed or drifting gently upwards and unfocused, if you're able. Whatever feels more comfortable for you. Now, before we take our breaths, Think about something that brings you comfort, a place, a person, a pet, a song, whatever's relevant to you. Deepen into that feeling of comfort and take a deep breath with us in through the nose, filling your belly with air. 
and exhale through the mouth. So let's take our first breath. In through the nose, out through the mouth. One more time. In through the nose, out through the mouth. Awesome. Great job, y'all. This is a quick grounding exercise anyone can do when your nervous system is in need of a little calming. It can help bring yourself back into your body. Once again, I'm Mitch, one of the new advocates at the WGIC. Thanks for having me on the show today. And now Victoria is going to take y'all through the last bit of our program. Thanks, Mitch. That was a great exercise. Grounding techniques can be so valuable to help us cope when things are hard. Now, we threw a lot of information at you about relationship violence, and I hope you have more clarity around this topic. The advocates at the WGAC are here to answer any questions and to support you with whatever you need. If you or someone you know is experiencing an abusive relationship, call our 24-7 confidential hotline at 970-492-4242. And if nothing else, remember that no matter what your partner might tell you, abuse is not love. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Again, to reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.